So how we produce food, how we engage and become good stewards of the land and its resources connected in new and different ways. There can be really radically uneven impacts of efforts to secure the water supply for a climate change future. We had schools shutting down. You literally can't go outside in many parts of the state because you can't breathe. Welcome to Uncertain Forecast, a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona. The focus of our podcast is on climate justice, an issue that affects people worldwide, particularly where inequality is greatest, but which is often disguised or invisible. My name is Nicole Ambrew, lecturer of urban planning at Cal Poly Pomona, executive director at Tinkercraft Design and Advocacy Group, and faculty fellow with CCEP. In this episode of the series, we share with you a panel discussion hosted by CCEP on the topic of wildfires, an important one for California. For this conversation, which I had the pleasure of moderating, we brought together four individuals leading the fight for equitable access to wildfire mitigation and adaptation measures in California. We were joined by researchers, scholars, and people working in the field on behalf of the public and on behalf of the ecosystems affected by extreme wildfire events, each of whom had unique insight into the many ways wildfires affect people and communities in ways that often don't make the headlines invisible to many. Listen in to hear how vulnerability and exposure in the face of wildfire are heightened for some, not all. And just a quick note, due to COVID-19, these panels were held remotely via Zoom. As a result, you may at times hear the panelists refer to visuals they are presenting to the audience through Zoom's screen share function. If you're interested, the video recordings of these discussions are available at CCEP's website, which is posted in the show notes. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, please share our podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Uncertain Forecast, a podcast about climate justice brought to you by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, in the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Pomona. My name is Alex Madva, and as director of CCEP, and on behalf of the other CCEP faculty fellows co-organizing Uncertain Forecast, namely Nicole Lambrew, Brady Collins, and Corey Aragon, we are pleased to bring you our first panel on climate justice. First, I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, and we just put the link in the chat now for you to sign up for our mailing list and stay in the know about all our current uh, events that are upcoming. We are excited to be offering a full lineup of events this spring, so please mark these dates down in your calendar now. Next, on Friday, February 25th, from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m., and all these times will be Pacific time, we'll be hosting It's California, Jake, Power, Water, and the Golden State, where an interdisciplinary panel of experts will examine California's fragile relationship to water and what the drought tells us about power, profit, in the Golden State. Then on Friday, March 18th, from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m., we'll host Air Pollution and Disaster Recovery. Our March panel will explore the history of air pollution and policies to address it, including the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency and contemporary questions about the ethics of environmental disaster recovery. Finally, on Friday, April 15th, from 12 p.m. to 1.30 p.m., we'll host Soil Food and the Ecosystems of California, which will explore the effects of soil depletion on California's ecosystems and food production. And don't forget to catch up on season one of CCEP's podcast, Securing Justice, which focused on California housing insecurity 
and which you can find anywhere you get your podcasts. The subject of today's panel is California wildfires and climate justice. Today's moderator is Nicole Lambrew, whose work focuses on the politics of climate resilience and how they inform urban environmental transformations. Nicole is an architect, urban designer, and researcher with experience in designing and building initiatives for public space. She is pursuing a PhD in urban planning from UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs, and her current research looks at how exposure, social vulnerability, and adaptive capacity of populations facing wildfire risk in California are assessed. So without further ado, let me hand the virtual mic over to Nicole. Thank you, Alex, and thank you all for being here. Um, thank you especially to our esteemed panelists for taking the time to join us today. I want to start with a very kind of brief framing of wildfires that we've been talking about in our um, offline conversations, our respective research, and with our students. So it's a fact that there's a lot of uh, energy and resources in wildfire ecology and behavior research, but very little has been done in terms of understanding social impacts of wildfire, especially on populations who tend to be excluded from our typical um, data gathering activities. And wildfires are not, of course, isolated disasters. They're compounded by a number of issues from our approach to land use, uh, ownership issues, housing precarity, um, ecosystem management issues, but also other vulnerabilities that are experienced by certain populations who are historically and systemically excluded from conversations about the very same issues that could rise to the disproportional uh, exposure to risk that they experience. So this understanding potentially calls into question which populations are considered legitimized victims in disasters in which populations remain invisible. So with that, I have the privilege of introducing our first panelist, Dr. Michael Mendez. He's an assistant professor um, of environmental planning and policy at UC Irvine and a visiting scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. He recently served as faculty fellow in sustainability studies and was an associate research scientist at the Yale School of the Environment. He also brings to his research over a decade long span of experience in the public and private sectors engaged in policymaking processes. And in 2021, Governor Newsom appointed Dr. Mendez to the Los Angeles Regional Water Quality Control Board. The accolades are many, but I do wanna focus on two things here. One is Dr. Mendez's book that has been extremely influential to me, Climate Change from the Streets, which analyzes the contentious politics involved in incorporating environmental justice into global climate change policy. And the other is that, um, and I think this will resonate with many in our audience today, as a youth in Pacoima, Somar Lake Butaris, Dr. Mendez was surrounded by people resisting environmental racism, work that really led to some of the research he's currently involved with and um, that he will share with us today. So thank you for being here, Dr. Mendez, and I'll turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Nicole, and thank you to the center for this warm invitation. I'm quite excited to be here today and help kick off your 2020 uh, sessions on looking at different forms of ethics and social justice, particularly around uh, issues of um, invisible or hidden populations uh, during disasters like extreme wildfire events. So thank you for that. And thank you, Nicole. And we, I hope to be able to collaborate with you more in the future. 
Um, so as I mentioned, I'll be talking about uh, these invisible hidden populations uh, during disasters like extreme wildfire events with a focus in, in California and the coastal wine country regions of both Central California as well as Northern California. Much of the discussion that you may have heard about these extreme wildfire events have been on the economic impact um, uh, uh, to farmers, uh, wineries, and winemakers, such as uh, this this. Uh, issue now coming out about a, a smoke taint or tainted grapes, which is estimated to have cost the wine industry last year in 2020, uh, well in, in 2021, um, the wine industry $3.7 billion. Uh, and wine taint or tainted grapes essentially is when that smoke gets infused in, uh, within the mem membrane of the, of the grape itself and affects taste, smell. Um, and so that can have a, a very drastic impact to the wine and the industry itself. But too much concern is placed on that, on the wine industry and these economic impacts, but not the social impacts, in particular to farm workers, undocumented Latino and indigenous farm workers in particular, that are harvesting the grapes during wildfire events and how their lungs and health are being tainted as well. So in California, as it was mentioned, we are experiencing a major climate change crisis. In the last several years, millions of people have been impacted by multiple disasters, fires, blackouts, heat waves, drought, hazardous air quality, and now, of course, the ever-present COVID-19 pandemic. These compounding of disasters have cascading health, social, and economic impacts. And due to existing structural inequality, these impacts are disproportionately affecting low-income people of color. In essence, wildfires in California are not isolated disasters. They often now compound with other hazards and comorbidities, or what is called a syndemic in the field of public health. So now more than ever, it's crucial to understand uh, how these events amplify existing inequalities and how to lessen the resulting harms, particularly in the context of extreme wildfire events to undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants. Uh, while this talk is based on the impacts to California's most marginalized and stigmatized populations, the research has global implications. California's wildfire problems are now impacting the world. Last, uh, in, in 2020, smoke from wildfire, uh, extreme wildfire events not only reached the, uh, New York State, but also, also Western uh, Europe. So California's smoke is now impacting sensitive populations globally. Given their social status, undocumented Latino and indigenous migrants uh, are particularly vulnerable to disasters such as wildfire and require special uh, consideration and disaster planning. They are disproportionately affected by racial discrimination, exploitation, economic hardships, less English and Spanish proficiency, and fear of deportation in their everyday lives, their pre-disaster marginalized status. So we really start um, this work, which is, I, I do it as a community engaged project with co-authors from migrant rights groups and labor justice groups. We really start with this premise. If you, if you want to tackle uh, disaster risk reduction, it starts with the social integration of migrants before disaster happens. Understanding that they have a pre-marginalized uh, uh, status before a disaster. And when a disaster does uh, hit, it only exasperates uh, their, their social economic conditions and create this form of hyper-marginalization for this population, particularly because they're not socially integrated into our society, in particular in our social safety net for unemployment insurance, health care, um, and disaster um, benefits from the federal government and state and local as well. Our research 
um, uh, that we first published uh, uh, was in 2000, uh, the 2018 Thomas Fire in California's Ventura and Santa Barbara counties. And again, this was developed in a co-production as framework migrant rights and environmental justice groups that lived and worked during the wildfire disasters are my co-authors. They were vital contributors uh, to the research design, data collection, and analysis. They were also key in uh, presenting study findings to multiple policy audiences at the local, state, national, and even international levels, including the United Nations International Organization on Migration. Moreover, this co-productionist framework shows that undocumented uh, migrants are rendered invisible in the context of public policy by systemic racism and cultural norms regarding US citizenship and who is considered a worthy disaster victim. Our research highlights how political choices are being intentionally made that prioritize some lives over others. Climate change is making wildfire season longer and more severe, as we all know. In California, 17 of the 20 largest wildfires by acreage uh, have occurred since the year 2000. In Sonoma County, which is our new research site um, in Northern California, an epicenter of wildfires and a bastion of California's high-end wine industry has suffered multiple years of extreme wildfire events that have been ranked in the top five and top 20 for the most destructive and deadly wildfires in California's history. Cumulatively, they have burned nearly 1 million acres, destroyed over 12,000 structures, and caused 34 deaths. While climate science expects wildfires to become more frequent and severe, it is important to explore how some people and communities are more affected by these events than others. In California, while many of the fire-prone uh, regions are largely populated by higher-income groups, they also include hundreds of thousands of low-income individuals who lack the resources to prepare or recover from, uh, from fire. These numbers will likely surge according to the California Fourth Climate Assessment Report, which projects the state's wildfire burn area may increase by 77% by the end of the century. The state of uh, California, however, does not have a comprehensive analysis of wildfire based on social vulnerability indices or demographic data, and compounding this issue, undocumented migrants are often undercounted in the U.S. Census. Outcomes occurring during and after a wildfire have major environmental justice implications uh, in that certain populations, due to their socioeconomic status, must live with a disproportionate share of environmental impacts and suffer the related public health and quality of life burdens. Moreover, in our research, we investigate how human identities, such as gender, class, race, ingenuity, and immigration status, intersect with wildfire disaster. Sonoma County, which is my new research site, uh, has been an epicenter for extreme wildfire and environmental injustice in California. Media outlets, governments, and scholars across the country, uh, however, have largely focused reports on the loss of coastal and hillside mansions, and impacts to wealthy homeowners and farmers. The Sonoma fires, however, not only destroyed expensive property and crops, but it also endangered the health and livelihood of thousands of, of undocumented migrants and farm workers in particular. California's home to an estimated 2.5 uh, million undocumented migrants, many of whom are farm workers or are employed in service jobs such as housekeeping and landscaping. In Sonoma County, Undocumented individuals are estimated to account for 8% of the population or 38,000 people. Um, and there's high levels of racial and economic inequality and a lack of political and economic inclusion, as I mentioned earlier. 
This is a heavy, heavy fire prone and drought impacted area. Um, the landscape between mountains and the ocean creates vulnerabilities in housing, transportation, and infrastructure, and major agriculture and tourism industries with uh, low wage uh, migrant uh, workforce. Governments in, in California in particular have overlooked the needs of indigenous, indigenous farm workers and migrant families in, in developing disaster plans. Sonoma County is home to a growing uh, indigenous Mexican population. It is estimated that 12,000 indigenous people from southern Mexico uh, live and work in Sonoma County. Concentrated in, in, in labor-intensive sectors such as row crops and wine grapes, indigenous migrants perform an increasing amount of the arduous labor which contributes to the profitability and affordability of fresh fruits, vegetables, and wine. In particular, indigenous Mexican people in Sonoma County are culturally and linguistically isolated. Many are illiterate, and some speak neither Spanish nor English, but only their native uh, languages such as Mixteco, Triqui, Maya, and Chapino. It is important to note that indigenous Mexican people are not Hispanic or Latino, but indigenous. They are often homogenized with the Latino uh, communities. While disaster efforts uh, and relief efforts in Sonoma County have largely been praised as effective, migrant workers were especially impacted from the fire due to the loss of employment, violations of occupational health and safety standards, the lack of uh, evacuation in their, in their native language or language injustice, uh, confusion about eligibility for disaster relief services, and poor infrastructure and housing in migrant communities. Undocumented migrant socioeconomic status is usually precarious. However, the wildfire uh, disaster intensified their already difficult situation. The Sonoma fires, moreover, revealed how undocumented migrants and those with seasonal work visas uh, require special consideration in disaster planning. These, uh, for, uh, these individuals are often afraid to seek help and restitution during and after a wildfire for fear of deportation. Undocumented migrants uh, are also unable to access disaster relief services because of language barriers and prohibition from assessing federal and some state disaster assistance programs. Moreover, a lack of occupational health and safety standards are one of the key uh, concerns as intensifying wildfires collide with harvest season each year. In particular, undocumented uh, farm workers are shouldering the burden of protecting Sonoma's wine grapes of, of smoke and ash. Fine particulate matter or a PM2.5 uh, for wildfire smoke, which is a toxic uh, mix of heavy metals and other chemicals from burning vehicles and structures and other objects can be several times more harmful to human respiratory health than PM 2.5 from other sources such as car exhaust. When the, uh, while the annual mean level of PM 2.5 has declined over the decades uh, due to implementation of strong air quality pro, uh, policies to reduce emissions from controllable sources in the state, uh, the frequency and severity of, uh, uh, of uh, smoke events with PM 2.5 PM exceedances has increased significantly in California due to wildfires. Since 2005 in Northern California, the annual mean uh, PM.25 has increased as a result of extreme wildfire events, and these events have overtaken as the main source, source of exceedances. The harm due to wildfires spoke to farm workers, moreover, may be greater than previously thought, bolstering the argument for additional research and policies to safeguard the most vulnerable and stigmatized population. And to put this into context, these individuals are asked often to enter into mandatory evacuation zones that are considered hazardous 
to the, uh, the general population, but they're asked to enter into these zones through what's called uh, access verification permits that the agricultural commissioner at the county level issues that allows them to um, uh, go beyond these barricades and harvest the crop in these very unsafe and often very toxic uh, conditions. For example, in, in some of our research, um, some indigenous farm workers told us, during the fire, I worked three days without a mask. Uh, it caused me headaches and watery eyes, as well as a cough. We were, we were scared because we were very near where the fire was occurring. The masks were not handed out until the city came to regulate. Another um, farm worker told us, we all got sick. Our throats closed in from breathing too much smoke and our kids couldn't go to school. We had to buy masks and medicine for our throats and some goggles because my eyes were irritated when I wor uh, worked. And, and other uh, farm workers actually told us that they had black saliva from working for so many hours during these very toxic um, uh, events. And um, before, I know my time's uh, Oma, before I just wanna talk about uh, the, the form of language injustice. Uh, some of these advisories uh, are not provided in languages commonly spoken, uh, spoken in, the, in the area. For example, this one on a, a advisory boil alert about not to drink the water. That's primarily uh, uh, low-income uh, Latino and indigenous communities in uh, Ventura, Ventura co uh, County. And uh, it's important to think about the what the wildfire is doing to uh, access to, uh, to safe drinking water. Um, oftentimes it, they're told to boil this water, but there may be other uh, hazardous chemicals such as benzene in the water that can be um, more harmful for you if you uh, heat it up. And um, that benzene and other pollutants can be in the pipes for weeks. So there was research out of uh, the University of Purdue that showed that benzene and other chemicals were in the water pipes for months after uh, one of the big fires from 2017. And um, one last thing before I go, I, I think uh, we need to move away from this idea of uh, just focusing on property values. A major publication I want to leave you is uh, research and our response need to move beyond property, uh, just thinking about property values. Current disaster policies render many minority and communities invisible as shown in this case study um, uh, and migrant uh, communities were the most impacted. Moreover, immigration status has received little attention in disaster vulnerability mapping research and policy responses. Though a large proportion of disaster studies have uh, considered race and ethnicity as a vulnerability factor, impacts experienced by migrants require an intersectional research approach. Current disaster policies also fail to count for the complex webs of impacts caused by disasters far beyond the destruction of property within the perimeter of the fire itself. Toxic smoke flows down from burning mountainsides, settling in densely uh, populated uh, valleys be below, threatening outdoor workers, lavish hillside mansions are destroyed or evacuated, leaving low-wage uh, uh, migrant um, gardeners, housekeepers, and caregivers unemployed. Tourism throughout the region shuts down, putting thousands of hotel employees out of work, from the loss of housing and infrastructure to the closure of schools and job sites. Multiple regions are impacted beyond the footprint of the fire, the actual fire itself. For example, a low-income migrant family living outside a burn area who loses several weeks of wages without eligibility for assistance may be more negatively impacted than a high-income homeowner who lives within the fire risk zone whose property is replaced by their homeowner's insurance policy, which also pays for the hotel accommodations for them to stay in the interim. So uh, 
closing, if we, I just want to leave with this idea, if we really do want to um, tackle disaster risk reduction, it starts with the social integration of migrants before disaster happens, understanding that um, disasters only exasperate existing inequalities, uh, and it creates this hyper marginalization for this uh, uh, community, particularly since there's no sa uh, so social safety net. So thank you, and I could talk more about my policy recommendations and findings during the Q&A. Thank you so much, Dr. Mendez, for sharing some of this important work with us. It really adds a dimension to wildfire work that needs to be foregrounded, I think, and, and in our future discussions related not only to how we understand wildfire risk, but also climate justice more broadly. So thank you. Um, I'll now introduce um, Katie McConnell. Katie is a PhD candidate studying environmental sociology at the Yale School of the Environment. Her research is focused on the socioeconomic impacts of climate change and her dissertation research specifically that is funded by the NSF examines how wildfires are changing migration and settlement patterns across the US. So we'll hear um, a bit more about her work today. It's worth also mentioning that Katie is engaged in research on the climate implications of indigenous land dispossession. And finally, I did see that this summer, Katie will join Brown University's Population Studies and Training Center as a postdoc research associate to support the development of a nationwide data set of environment migration systems. So Katie, thank you so much for being here and I'll turn the stage over to you now. Thanks so much, Nicole. All right, does that look okay to everyone? Great. Well, thanks so much again for having me. It's really a pleasure to be able to speak with you all today and, and hear about others' research. My name is Catherine McConnell. I go by Katie, and I'm a PhD candidate where I study sociology at, at Yale School of the Environment. Um, but while I'm based at Yale, I actually live out in Boise, Idaho, which is where I was born and grew up and have based a lot of my dissertation research Idaho, is, as you may know, is also a very fire-affected place, much like California, which is probably why I gravitated towards this research. Um, before I get started, I also want to acknowledge that many of you, especially those of you living in California, may yourselves have been impacted by wildfires or have had friends or family be very much impacted. So I recognize that this, for many, is a very personal topic. Um, and to that end, I'm especially keen to hear your feedback and questions and in places where I might be getting things wrong and, and not seeing things that I should. So really looking forward to this conversation. I'll start by talking briefly about broad trends that we're seeing in, in wildfires across the US and then focus in on specific research I've been conducting on the aftermath of the campfire, which if you remember happened in 2018 in, in Northern California in Butte County. So wildfires take place across much of the United States, um, but as, as you know, they're very much concentrated here in the Western US, and in particular in, in California. And when we look at scientific projections looking to the future, we anticipate that wildfire frequency and intensity will continue to increase in coming decades, making addressing wildfires a key environmental, but also a key social issue. Again, really appreciate being able to talk um, with other social scientists who are thinking about the, the social impacts rather than just fires from an ecological standpoint, which is often how we hear them discussed. Um, if you have lived in California or maybe Western North America for longer than five or so years, you probably remember a time when wildfires were more sporadic or unusual. And at the very least, we didn't used to have full fire seasons, just a fire here or there. 
Um, and when we look at data of buildings destroyed each year by fires, we see this huge shift in average annual fire destruction. And again, really want to echo Dr. Mendez's point to shift away from property destruction metrics towards other evaluations of, of damage. And for this reason, I focus on individual buildings destroyed. Since around 2016 or 2017, we see that the number of buildings um, burned each year by fires has gone up just dramatically. And while we don't have data fully aggregated from 2021 yet, we have to imagine that it's going to be similarly very high from, from events such as the Dixie fire. So these fires, of course, have huge impacts on the people who live in affected communities, as well as those who work in affected communities. So I want to shift now with that context in mind to talking a, a bit about the context of the campfire. Um, and I'll start by describing the set of communities that are collectively or locally termed the ridge um, that were impacted by the campfire, which remains to this day one of the most destructive fires in, in US history in terms of um, the life lost as, as well as the number of buildings that were destroyed. I imagine many of you might be familiar with this fire and this region already it was very widely publicized by the media at the time, um, but I want to give a bit more context for, for those of you who may not be. So the ridge is located in Butte County and it's home to a number of communities in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So it includes the town of Paradise, as well as surrounding unincorporated communities of Megalia, Yankee Hill, Concow, and, and Butte Creek Canyon. And the ridge together was an enclave of relatively affordable housing in what we know is an incredibly housing stressed state. Um, many of the former Ridge residents who I've interviewed for my research describe having moved there originally because it was a place where they could afford to rent or buy a home that they otherwise wouldn't be able to, say in, in Chico, one of the nearby cities to the Ridge. Um, to give you a bit of context about the population of folks who lived there, um, this was a predominantly white community and most residents did not identify it as Latino or Latina. Um, there was a pretty broad socioeconomic spectrum, but it tended to be a bit lower than perhaps some of the surrounding cities, again, such as, as Chico or, or Sacramento. And I think a final note that's important about the population of the Ridge is that it tended to be a bit older, with around a quarter of residents being 65 years or older. I pulled out these photos that were taken, I took them from Google Maps from before the fire. I think we're often saturated with images of destruction. I want to give you a sense of how the community was like um, before the fire. It was very wooded, um, very beautiful place. So the first area of research I'll speak to focuses on how differences in our built environment influence whether buildings survive a fire or not, and particularly in the case of the campfire. So we know that there are many things that can be done in building design and in planning that can protect buildings against wildfires. So things like enclosing vents, um, exchanging single paned windows for double paned windows, um, swapping out building materials for more fire resistant materials or clearing flammable brush from what's known as defensible space from around a building. But we also know that most if not many of these strategies to protect homes from wildfires can be very expensive. And we know that not everyone, in fact, most people do not live in homes that are designed to be quote unquote fire resilient and that show up in, in magazines like Dwell Magazine, like, like the building shown here. 
many older buildings that many people across the country live in were built decades ago and were designed without consideration of wildfires simply because fires were not the same threat when the buildings were designed as, as fires are today. So all of this to say is my research begins from this starting assumption that social inequities are embedded in our built environment and the buildings that people live in. And so as a result, we would expect the physical impacts of hazards like wildfires to also be unequal. So to answer these sort of questions, I've been studying data on all of the buildings that were in the campfire burn footprint. So around 23,000 buildings. And I'm really trying to understand whether certain structures were more or less likely to be destroyed in the fire, paying special attention to what I would call socioeconomic differences in destruction patterns. So here I've pulled out sort of a selection of some of the data I use, which is from the National Aerial Imagery Program um, to document which, which homes were destroyed and which survived. And to summarize what I'm finding from this research, um, I have three main findings. First, compared to single family homes or multifamily homes, as well as commercial buildings, we're seeing that mobile homes were much more likely than any other building type to be destroyed. We also see this relationship where as a property's value increased, the likelihood that the fire would destroy buildings on that property went down. So in short, more expensive properties had less structure loss. And then finally, compared to owner-occupied buildings, we're seeing that renter-occupied homes were also more likely to be destroyed um, relative to owner-occupied. So I think these findings are important because they show us how these social differences become embedded in our built environment, subsequently resulting in uneven disaster impacts. We see that the buildings that house residents who tend to already be in more financially precarious situations, so renters, lower income residents, residents of mobile homes, um, these buildings are more likely to be destroyed. So this means that dynamics of sort of social or contextual vulnerability, so, such as what Dr. Mendez described, are then compounded by inequities in our physical infrastructure. I wanna note here that questions around differential impacts across axes such as race, gender, immigration status, um, language use, are really, really important and need to be investigated. And um, for the research that I've been doing, I've been limited in my ability to ask and answer these questions by the data that I use. And in particular, because I only have characteristics of buildings, I don't have characteristics of the people who live in buildings. So that's just to explain a bit why, for now, the, the work I've done is really focused more on socioeconomic axes of difference. So, in this research, sort of after documenting these uneven impacts, I've been trying to understand why we see these differences in structure survival. So what is it physically about, say, mobile homes that makes them more likely to be destroyed than a single family home? And one of the reasons that I'm seeing coming out of the modeling that I've done has to do with density of development. So essentially buildings that are in close proximity to other buildings in the campfire burn footprint were more likely to be destroyed. And this is because a lot of destruction that happened during the campfire took place by what fire scientists call house-to-house -house burning, in which one building ignites and the radiant heat from one building is hot enough to ignite buildings that are located close by. So when we look at mobile homes, they're on average much closer to other mobile homes and other structures than say single family homes, which I think is in part why we're seeing these different destruction rates. So for instance, you can see in this photo on the left, this is the site where a mobile home park was located 
where each blue dot indicates where a mobile home was located before the fire. And you can see that these are very close together. From what I can gather, and this is where I'd be really keen to hear you all's feedback, much of the guidance that's been developed for wildfire mitigation seems to be very much geared towards single family homes that have large defensible space radii, um, and also geared more towards homeowners sort of at the exclusion of renters. So in my mind, I think we need more people thinking about what fire mitigation can look like in dense communities, in particular for mobile home parks. And that we also need to be thinking really seriously about the costs associated with mitigation strategies and be planning for the reality that many, maybe most people in some communities don't have the resources to adjust their homes to make them fire resistant. A question that I'm working to answer now, close to answering hopefully, is whether we see similar socioeconomic differences in which structures are being rebuilt and which structures are not. So for instance, are buildings that were occupied by renters being rebuilt as quickly as, as buildings that were occupied by homeowners? And this question links into a broader research area around a phenomenon known as climate gentrification, in which more affluent residents have the resources to rebuild, build climate resilient buildings and, and essentially remain in place in high hazard risk areas, um, whereas less affluent residents do not. So to answer this question, I'm using machine learning techniques paired with geospatial data to help me identify where buildings are being rebuilt across the landscape um, several years after the fire. So my research on wildfires is situated within a larger area of study known as climate migration or environmental migration scholarship. And this field aims to describe how various climate stresses are, are influencing human mobility. Um, much of this work has been focused internationally, but I've aimed to focus here in the United States. And in the past few fire seasons, we've seen growing media attention around this question of, of wildfires and mobility with headlines around quote unquote climate change refugees cropping up in, in news coverage. But from a social science perspective, there's actually very scarce research that empirically documents whether and how wildfires affect where people move and, and live. So the research that I'm conducting, the second piece of research I'll describe is focused on understanding the experiences of people who were affected by the campfire and ended up moving as a result. So in the context of the campfire, we know from, from work that's been done that there has been substantial population loss in the region after the fire. So we know that people have moved away. And the analysis shown here really great work was done by Peter Hansen, who's a geospatial researcher at Chico State. And um, he shows us a snapshot of where residents who used to live in the burn footprint moved to in the first, I think, four to six months after the fire. And you can see that, that most folks are still concentrated in California, um, but they also have moved to many other parts of the country as well. And as it turns out, many campfire survivors ended up moving to towns and cities across Idaho, again, which is where I live. So as a result, much of my research has ended up describing this very particular migration pathway between uh, Butte County in, in Northern California and the Treasure Valley, which is the, the Boise metropolitan region where I live and shown here. So the main questions I, I answer through these interviews are, First, how did campfire survivors decide to remain in place and rebuild versus move away and find a new community? What obstacles did they face or perceive that they would face in rebuilding? 
And then finally, among those who did move, how did they find their new community? A lot of this work has been conducted through remote interviews over the past few years, by Zoom or by phone, um, given pandemic conditions, with residents, former Ridge residents who are now living all across the country. And this work has also involved some in-person research where I'm able to at events like this, the Slice of Paradise in Idaho gathering is an annual get together of Paradise residents who've moved here to Idaho after the fire. And to summarize briefly, I can get into this more in detail, it's of interest. Um, my findings generally are showing that wildfire destruction in many instances act as a, acted as a sort of accelerator for major life changes um, or migrations that might have happened eventually, things like retirement, things like um, moving away to find someone more affordable to live. I also find that social networks and in particular access to affordable housing played a really major role in drawing fire survivors to new places like Idaho. I think I'll wrap things up there, um, but I'm really looking forward to your questions here in, in, in the conversation today. If you have any follow-up questions, please feel free to email me or if I can be of help to your work, um, please be in touch. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Katie. Um, insightful work there and really important in moving us beyond, um, as has been said by both you and Dr. Mendez, of this framing focused on housing value loss um, and instead pursuing this very important and different way of understanding housing precarity. Um, so with that, um, I'll turn now to introduce Josh Friday, who serves as California's Chief Service Officer um, within the Office of Governor Gavin Newsom to lead service, volunteer, and civic engagement efforts throughout California. It's a privilege to have him with us today. Since appointed, California Volunteers has launched the nation's first statewide Climate Action Corps Volunteer Initiative, among other great accomplishments. Um, Josh also served as Chief Operating Officer for NextGen Climate, a leading national organization focused on climate change, served in the military as an officer in the United States Navy from 2009 to 2013 as a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps, and received his law degree from UC Berkeley. Currently serves as board chair for Demos, a national think tank focused on issues of economic, racial, and political inequality, and is a founding board member of Amazon Frontlines, a leading organization to protect indigenous communities and territories in the Amazon. Thank you so much for being here, and I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for, for having us. Thank you for putting this series together. And uh, uh, and having this conversation. It's a really important one. I also want to thank uh, David Porges uh, from the university, who I think was helpful in coordinating uh, me being invited. Who, uh, he had served for many years on our commission uh, and um, was appointed by the governor uh, and has done a ton of work in this space, so grow grateful to him. Uh, and I think maybe what might be helpful is to start off and just give a little bit of context of what our office does, uh, why the governor is so passionate about this, uh, and then um, talk about how the work that we're doing relates to um, this conversation uh, in, in, in an important way. Um, so our office, California Volunteers, as was mentioned, um, is in the governor's office, and we're really tasked with thinking about how do we engage Californians in service and volunteerism and civic engagement around tackling some of our biggest issues. And, and this conversation is, is apparent. There's, there's, there's really 
uh, very few issues, if any, that are as big, as important, as crucial, as urgent, um, and as necessary to tackle than climate change uh, and wildfires in California. And the reality is, and, and we've talked some about it today, that, that wildfires are something that uh, literally affects every Californian. I mean, you can't live in California uh, and, and not uh, appreciate that one, for the last several years, even before COVID, my kids' school was shut down every year because of smoke days. I mean, they literally had smoke days, we, you know, which we never had in California as a child growing up. Uh, and so we had schools shutting down. Um, you literally can't go outside in many parts of the state uh, because you can't breathe. Uh, it's, it, the, the air is too, uh, too toxic uh, and cumbersome to breathe. So this is an issue that's literally affecting all of us. And the question is, is how do we also make it an issue where all of us can be part of the solution, where all of us can actually do something to protect not just ourselves, but protect our families, protect our homes, protect our communities, uh, and as we're discussing today, protecting those who are most vulnerable, those who are affected uh, first uh, and often worst by climate change uh, and by the, the impacts of wildfire. So what I wanted to uh, have a chance today to talk about is some of the things that we're doing at California Volunteers uh, and in the governor's office. There's a ton that the governor's doing uh, in our budget uh, record press uh, setting budgets uh, put towards supporting wildfire prevention um, and, uh, and this work that I won't go into because uh, there's others who are better experts. But what we'll talk about is what can we do and what are we doing both uh, to have people um, be able to respond in a resilient way, but also more importantly, to take action to try to prevent wildfire uh, and to try to prevent the worst impacts of climate change. Uh, and I really appreciated um, that uh, Michael started us off talking about Sonoma uh, because I, one of the, you know, one of the most, I'd say, harrowing experiences that I'll never forget uh, is my wife waking me up in the middle of the night uh, thinking that our house was on fire uh, and in a panic because she was nine months pregnant and a week overdue. Uh, and it turned out that what we were smelling was the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa, uh, which was a, just a couple towns north of us. Um, I was living in Novato at the time. And essentially overnight, what we saw was uh, the destruction, the annihilation of whole communities uh, within literally hours um, because of wildfire. And uh, what, I'll, what I'll never forget, I'll, there's a couple of things that I won't ever forget from that experience. One is, uh, as I happened to be on the city council at the time uh, and ultimately uh, became mayor of Novato uh, as my hometown. And what was incredible was we, we were the town uh, south of uh, Santa Rosa that was safe enough for people to evacuate to. So we literally had thousands of people, thousands of people evacuate into our town with no place to go. And a large majority, as Michael indicated, a large majority of those were Latino and often undocumented people who either uh, didn't have uh, uh, other family to go to uh, didn't have the resources to to uh, to to go to a hotel uh, or to fly uh, to to another state um, where it was safer, 
Um, and so we had a situation where our churches filled up overnight. Uh, and, and for weeks, uh, we were helping provide basic resources, food, water, diapers, clothing uh, for people who weren't able to, to, to go back home at all. And what was striking about that uh, experience was how everyone in a really incredible way came together to support each other, how there was there was just such a sense of solidarity, such a sense of people wanting to step up and help each other during that time. And that's often what we experience in a crisis, uh, that when there is a crisis, neighbors want to help neighbors. People want to step up uh, and support each other. And so one of the things that we're doing at California Volunteers is uh, working on programs to help net communities together, make them stronger, build leadership councils at the neighborhood level that allow us uh, to be able to respond when these disasters happen uh, faster um, and more intentionally. So we launched a neighbor to neighbor initiative. The governor just proposed $10 million in this year's budget uh, to fund a statewide neighbor to neighbor uh, initiative moving forward. Uh, that would do exactly this, that would cre create the, the infrastructure and the resources for organizations and neighborhood groups to be able to step up and help each other um, in, the, in the time of crisis. It's also to help think about how do, we, uh, how do we get ahead of this? How do we protect our communities on the front end? And I want to talk a little bit about that, um, uh, what uh, was mentioned earlier around the home hardening uh, and the defensible space, because that's the kind of work that we can do on the front end to actually protect our communities um, and uh, hopefully from, from burning down in the first place. Um, I also, uh, uh, just my last kind of thing point on the Tubbs fire, because um, I'll, I'll never forget this, uh, is uh, my wife ended up having her, her baby a week later. Uh, we were the first people admitted back to the Santa Rosa Kaiser, which is Santa Rosa's the community that was, that was, uh, that was burnt down. Uh, and literally from our room where the our, uh, where our son Tam was born, uh, you could you would look out the window, and all you saw was the remnants of an entire mobile home park that had basically disintegrated. It was burnt uh, in hours. Um, several people lost their lives who were not able to get out fast enough, uh, and it was a, it was just a harrowing and remarkable scene. Um, that I think highlights what was talked about earlier about uh, how communities like mobile home parks, where there are often seniors, uh, often uh, low-income people without resources uh, to, to move uh, or to do some of the measures we, we're, we're going to talk about, um, are very vulnerable. Uh, and so part of what we need to think about doing is how are we being proactive on the front end to identify these communities uh, and actually, and then what are we going to do to actually make sure they have the resources to protect themselves? So we, uh, in part, to answer this question, as was discussed earlier, launched what uh, what is the, the country's first statewide climate action corps. Uh, and it's very exciting. It's called the California Climate Action Corps. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest. You, you may have been paying attention or have heard that the national level, that the Biden administration has talked about creating a national climate corps. Um, that that Congress is uh, proposed creating a national climate court, something we're super excited about, uh, and something that we we hope happens. And we are, um, uh, and there's been uh, several things written recently about how what we're doing in California could potentially be a model for what what we could do around the country. But the vision behind the the climate court is really quite quite straightforward, um, which is how do we 
Um, how do we answer the big the question that I think many people have, uh, quite frankly, uh, in in our country and around the world uh, around climate change, which is what can I do about it? What can I, as an individual, as a as a person, actually do that can have a meaningful impact on climate change? Uh, and the answer is quite a bit. Uh, and the also the answer is when it comes to fire. Uh, that there are also quite quite a few things that that one can do to protect their home and their community um, from fire. But what we needed to do, what we felt we had to do, is to create to actually create the infra infrastructure and the opportunities uh, for people to take action. And that's what Governor Newsom uh, has created. That's what that's what he's invested in uh, in the legislature. And that's what we're starting to build out right now uh, across the state. So the way that the the uh, California Climate Action Corps works. Uh, we have sort of three levels of activity. One is we have a fellowship. Last year, we had over 300 organizers, Climate Corps organizers in low-income frontline communities around the state um, doing a variety of organizing and work focused on three main areas. One is urban greening, so a huge climate justice issue. Uh, I'm sure you've all have uh, done the research on this or are familiar with it, uh, but is around urban greening. Uh, that that low-income communities have historically been severely underinvested when it comes to trees and tree canopy, causing heat islands uh, and a lot of other uh, air quality issues um, that is exasperated by climate. So we're really focusing on how do we address that? How do we start to uh, deal with urban greening and, and urban farming uh, in a way that's uh, supporting uh, frontline communities? Uh, we've also been focused on food recovery. Uh, which is um, when I first started this, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know that food recovery and composting was such a big climate issue. It turns out it's a really big climate issue. Uh, and there's an important law that just um, got through requiring all counties and cities uh, to uh, severely increase, drastically increase the amount of composting and food recovery they do so that the food doesn't end up in a landfill uh, and create extra greenhouse gas emissions. And then the third area we've been focusing on is around what we're talking about today, fire mitigation. Uh, and this is really where we have fellows that are working with fire safe councils, working with local governments uh, and other communities um, to do things like do the risk assessments that we talked about, which is identifying where are the vulnerable communities? Where are the communities that we need that need resources? Uh, and, then, and then how do we actually go in and then when, once we've identified them and done the risk assessments, then we have to go in and, and harden those communities, harden those homes, make them more fire resilient uh, and actually do the work. We're also helping local governments implement their uh, wildfire protection plans. Um, and we're uh, helping communities um, and neighborhoods uh, prepare for uh, uh, PSPS events, the power shutoffs, um, and also other um, fire uh, response. So, so we have our fellows and communities across the state doing this. We've also created volunteer opportunities um, where you can find uh, volunteer opportunities if maybe you don't have six months or a year to do a, a Climate Corps fellowship where you would get a stipend and a scholarship while doing that, but maybe you want to volunteer on a Saturday afternoon or once a month, uh, we're creating those opportunities. And then lastly, we're also focusing, and this is probably uh, what is uh, ultimately going to be the most impactful around uh, wildfire prevention and protecting uh, vulnerable communities, uh, is around individual action. So we're working with CAL FIRE, which is a state agency that, that uh, oversees our forests and, and making makes sure that they're protected from wildfire, um, uh, to put out information, to educate communities, 
uh, and to um, and to tell people and show people and teach people how do you harden your home? What are the what are the ten steps that you can take to make your house more fire resilient? Um, a lot of those steps are free, not all of them. So we have to also have to figure out how we get resources uh, uh, to the people um, that need it. And the governor's put a lot of money in the budget uh, this coming budget to to try to address that. Uh, but we have a lot of work to do around individual action where we can educate communities uh, about the things that they can do on the front end to protect themselves. Uh, and so we're really focusing on that. A um, uh, uh, fantastic point was made about how in disasters uh, too often, and this, this really is a, um, a, a blind spot for us in California, um, especially given the diversity of our state, uh, too often materials that are put out, these education resources are done uh, in um, in languages that quite frankly don't reflect uh, our diversity. So uh, the governor created a program called Listos California uh, that is actually just focused on trying to provide uh, both resources for community-based organizations and also materials in different languages uh, that could provide this kind of preparation uh, materials um, so that we are actually reaching the people uh, who both need it the most and are, and are often, as was discussed, uh, uh, by the other speakers who are often impacted um, first. I, um, I'll say that uh, the, I'm, I'm glad we've also raised Paradise uh, and talked about that, the, the horrific fire that happened in Paradise um, a few years ago. And uh, one of the things that we learned when we went up there and met with legislators and community or uh, leaders um, and, and the nonprofit leaders in the community and we asked him, we said, what is the, what is the biggest challenge you're having for trying to rebuild after the fire, to, for trying to bring the community back um, and for trying to, uh, trying to recover? And their answer to us was, our biggest challenge right now is we don't have uh, enough social workers, uh, literally case managers, to actually call the people who had to leave, who lost their homes. Uh, who who had to evacuate and go live with a family in another state or um, a, a friend in, a, in another county. Uh, and so thousands of people hadn't even a year after the fire been contacted so to be alerted about what resources are actually available for them to even come home uh, and start to rebuild. So we launched a, a, a brand new uh, with a million dollars from my office and a million dollars from a community foundation, uh, AmeriCorps program. Uh, just to provide case work, case managers and social workers for um, uh, for the county uh, in Butte to support uh, the Paradise community um, to to start to recover. And I raise that example uh, for this reason: it's it demonstrates how if we invest in service, if we invest like AmeriCorps, if we invest in people, if we invest in programs like Climate Corps. Uh, that are actually uh, um, empowering people with the tools and resources uh, that we can both help recover from, from these uh, horrible events uh, and also what we know is just going to be ongoing impacts of climate change, but we can also be proactive and we can be proactive in protecting ourselves uh, and in making sure uh, that people um, are, are, we're at least mitigating the impact on people uh, because of climate change. So um, very excited to be here to talk to you all about this. We're very passionate about Climate Corps. The governor has talked about it with the president um, publicly uh, about uh, making this a model for the country. Uh, we would love any ideas anyone has. Uh, please reach out to us at uh, californiavolunteers.ca.gov with your ideas, uh, or if you want to be part of the program, let us know. 
We're starting to scale significantly. We hope to have a thousand college students participating uh, in our Climate Corps program by next fall. Uh, and ultimately, we need in order to address climate change uh, and in order to uh, protect all of us, we need to engage what we say and call is our most important asset here in California, which is the 40 million people that call California home. And that's what we're trying to do. And, uh, and we look forward to hopefully working with you all to get there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Josh. Really appreciate it. Um, for the work that you do and sharing some of that work with us and obviously building a community's adaptive capacity is certainly an important part of this conversation. I think the question is always for us, how, to, how are we defining this term community and who's considered you know, part of this process in a more inclusive way? Um, regardless, thank you so much. And finally, I do have the pleasure of introducing Brian Baker. He's a conversation director for Los Padres Forest Watch where he manages um, scientific, technical and volunteer projects. Brian has over nine years of experience in land and water conservation, community outreach and soil and water research, holds a master's and bachelor's in environmental soil and water science. So he'll bring an entirely different perspective here. Um, worked for several years in an aquatic ecology lab and as a program manager for a watershed conservation organization. Now, as the conservation director, um, he analyzes technical documents, writes comments on projects undergoing environmental review, um, pens articles in local news publications, monitors scientific literature on ecology and on land management. And like I said earlier, develops and coordinates volunteer field projects. So thank you so much, Brian, for being here. Great, thanks, Nicole. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's been really interesting hearing all the other speakers talk. I'm gonna actually, um, I didn't have a presentation set up uh, or anything, and I'm gonna try to keep this super short so we have plenty of time for questions, but I am gonna actually um, share my screen. I, I've got a couple of slides that I wanna go over a few more points, um, largely that reference some of the things that have already been brought up. So I'm gonna share this PowerPoint slide here. So um, yeah, so I, I work for this, this group called Los Padres Forest Watch and we're based in Santa Barbara County. We're based in Santa Barbara specifically. Uh, I myself have experienced several fires over the last few years. Uh, the Thomas fire of 2017, the Whittier fire of 2018, the Cave fire of 2019, the Alisol fire of 2021. You know, the list goes on and on. Um, I, I'm really interested in the ecological aspects of wildfire uh, and then how that connects in with uh, this sort of community side of fire. So how, um, you know, how do we protect communities from fire? And uh, I do a lot of data analysis for someone who's not really doing research per se, although I, I, I am working on a couple of um, scientific papers and, and have, have one in review right now. Um, I, I do a lot of analysis and it's mostly with GIS data. So I do a lot of map making uh, and I look at a lot of wildfire data in the state of California. So my sort of area of focus, it goes beyond just the Santa Barbara area uh, to incorporate the whole state. And one thing I want to iterate that we haven't, that's hard to um, conceptualize unless you're actually really looking at the data. When we think about wildfire in California, we tend to think that, you know, they're just uh, fires everywhere you look, you know, in a given fire year. 
and there there are a lot of them and they're contributing to all this burned acreage um and in reality when we look at 2021 just as an example of course this is also the um the time my dog and cat have decided that they want to uh play with each other so i don't know if that'll come through on my mic but when we look at 2021 um just eight fires uh, out of the over 8,000 fires that we had in the state accounted for about 75% of all of the burned acreage, right? So it's actually a really, really tiny number of fires that generally burn the most area and do the most damage to communities. Of course, how you define damage, uh, as people brought up previously, is really important. How, how you um, define communities is really important as well. Um, so I just want to make sure that that is clear that we're actually talking most of the time about a very small, very small time, uh, part of you know part of the fire picture in California, but these fires overwhelmingly are extreme events driven by weather, climate conditions, right? Uh, so usually it's some combination of extremely dry conditions and extremely windy conditions that are uh, coinciding. And of course, you have to have an ignition. Uh, so in 2021, most of our ignitions were, were human caused. But if you look at 2020, for example, most of our big fires were actually caused by lightning strikes because we had a really big lightning storm um, that happened in 2020. Uh, regardless, what we see is that when biggest fires tend to uh, burn the most acreage and cause the most damage is under these really uh, extreme conditions. So one of the like really, really important factors that we're seeing uh, in terms of driving the occurrence of big fires is something called vapor pressure deficit. This is a, a, a climatic variable that really, uh, I, I won't try to explain what vapor pressure deficit is, but just know that it is one of the things that's really dictating evapotranspiration rates in vegetation. So it's 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 the thing that is probably most correlated with evapotranspiration. And therefore, when you have a really high vapor pressure deficit, uh, you tend to have really high evapotranspiration, which means you have really dry vegetation. And so it just means that when vapor pressure deficit is high, the, the landscape is just flammable. If there's vegetation there, it's, it can burn very easily. Uh, and if you have an ignition and you have windy conditions, then you have this perfect mix for big fires to occur. And particularly when vapor pressure deficit is high, you also have the um, occurrence of, of what we call uh, long-range spotting. So you have fires that are they're burning, but they're also shooting embers out, sometimes miles. We're talking five to eight miles in some cases, which is pretty extreme, um, up ahead of the fire front. And then those start new fires, and then that all sort of burns together, uh, and they combine, and it makes it so that fires can spread really rapidly and become very large very quickly. Uh, and I, I won't belabor this point, just understand that vapor pressure deficit and temperature, uh, for example, are two really important metrics. So we see that the number of fires and the, the, fi the num number of acres burned in a given day uh, tends to be really correlated with um, maximum temperature. But I wanna go back to something that Katie was talking about. So this is paradise. Uh, and I've spent a lot of time looking at the campfire as well. It's unfortunately a really, um, a really prime example of so many things uh, when it comes to wildfire, and it it provides a good case study, uh, as tragic as it is. But I want to point out this mobile home uh, park. This is the Apple Tree Mobile Home Park, and I don't think it was the same one that Katie showed. I, I don't I don't believe so. So there there are multiple mobile home parks, but. What I want you to look at is, so this is right after the fire. You can see that most of the homes in this park uh, was were destroyed. 
But what I want you to look at is the vegetation surrounding the community, right? Uh, as Katie mentioned, you know, this is a pretty wooded area, uh, but what you see is a lot of green, right? A lot of green canopy. And this is really important. So these homes didn't burn because a fire necessarily came through this forested area and then started burning homes. It's really because embers were moving miles ahead of the fire. This was a really, really rapidly moving fire, uh, but it was uh, very specifically shooting embers out. It was casting embers uh, miles ahead of the flame front. And that was getting, those embers were getting into the the, the town of Paradise well before the fire front ever actually got there, and it started burning homes. And uh, not only are these homes, you know, densely packed in, as Katie mentioned, and uh, there's this radiant heat issue, there's this domino effect, but it's also once one home starts burning, it starts becoming an ember source for the homes around it. And so uh, it's not just radiant heat, but also it's, it's sort of exacerbating this already big problem of embers. But the key I'm trying to highlight here is that you have a lot of green forest surrounding this community. This is well after, the, this is after the fire, this is satellite imagery. Uh, most of the trees you see here uh, survived or they would have survived. A lot of them are cut down because there's a lot of like overzealous um, hazard tree removal that tends to happen in these communities post-fire. Um, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because when we look at our federal and state response, uh, county response, basically every level of government. When we're talking about how to deal with wildfire and wildfire mitigation, almost, almost across the board, the vast a majority of public funding of dollars that are going toward mitigation it, are going toward vegetation management. They're going toward removing vegetation, trying to remove as much vegetation from the landscape because vegetation is flammable and it can burn, right? Um, the problem is that when we're talking about community protection, whether or not people are protected, you know, they lose their lives and whether or not homes are lost, whether or not uh, all of these things happen, that is not very well predicted by whether or not there is vegetation on the landscape or how much vegetation there is. These things are so overwhelmingly driven by climatic, climatic and, and weather variables uh, like vapor pressure deficit and, and wind conditions, um, the amount of vegetation on the landscape, uh, especially as you get farther and farther away from uh, structures, from communities, it starts to not matter very much at all. As long as there are there's a fire somewhere and it's being driven by winds and you have embers moving in front of that fire, communities are at risk, right? Uh, homes are at risk. There are embers moving into communities very easily, easily, uh, and then they start burning, you know, home to home. Uh, but we are spending hundreds of millions of dollars in the state on trying to remove vegetation, which carries its own set of ecological risks uh, that are often under uh, underappreciated and overlooked because we are so focused on trying to remove a the source of fuel from fire um, that we are missing the part where money would be best spent, which would be pumping as much public funding into trying to get homes hardened, which there's virtually no money going into home hardening. Um, there, there's, there's been things here and there, uh, but they haven't really materialized in the way that they, they should have. Um, and they're a drop in the bucket compared to what we're spending on landscape scale vegetation management, uh, which doesn't really um, control whether or not we have big fires or not. Um, so we've got to be putting more money into helping communities directly by creating public 
funding, you know, programs for people to do home hardening, uh, to create fire safe shelters for communities this is something that's virtually not talked about it is something that's being done in australia where you have these community refuges uh, that people can go to that can also double as smoke shelters for vulnerable populations um, and and can be used for you know for however many days they need to be uh, they need to be used during these really extreme smoke events um, and we also need to you know really increase uh, what we're doing with alert and evacuation systems. I mean, it's only been within the last couple of years that we've actually made it so that alert systems have to be in Spanish. Uh, they were only required to be in English, uh, which was, a, 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 of course, a huge issue. But that was something um, that was brought up in the legislature just a few years ago. And uh, we've, we've got to, you know, really look at where we're building homes. This is just the other thing I want to mention. Um, and there's something I think Kate, Katie brought up, but this is Ventura. So this is kind of close to where I, I am. Uh, this is Ventura in 1945. This is right along the edge of what, um, what you would see as the town today. But notice that it's mostly orchards and then it's just wildland. It's mostly grazed um, rangeland. This is what it looks like in 2015. This is before the Thomas fire. So you can see there's an entire huge community that's been built um, where all this irrigated farmland was and all this wildland was. Uh, and then this is what it looked like after the Thomas fire. You can see that these are huge areas where you had um, really high levels of housing loss. Um, so where we build is extremely important. And as we try to address things like the housing uh, crisis, we have to be careful that we're not necessarily expanding into fire prone areas and wildland areas uh, and try to uh, look at infill development as much as possible. Um, there's so much more to say on this topic, but I do want to leave it open for questions. I guess um, I'll leave it with this. We tend to think of fire as just this really destructive thing. Um, obviously, it's it's very destructive in communities. Uh, when it burns homes, fire is, is a problem. It's bad. Um, but out on the landscape, out in our ecosystems, um, it's not nearly as destructive as you might think. This is the Rim Fire from 2013. Um, this was a 257,000 acre fire in the Sierra Nevada. This is what it looks like eight years later. Um, this is this was an entirely forested area, and you can see that it's mostly still forest. It's this sort of patchwork of uh, forest, and now there's a lot of uh, shrubland and young forest. There's new trees growing up. Um, this is a really what we call a heterogeneous landscape that is um, supporting a lot of different uh, plants and wildlife that may not have been able to be there when it was just purely forest uh, and specifically like denser old growth forest. So just remember that we are, we're up against this really issue, you know, interesting issue where on the one hand, fire is causing all these problems in our communities. Uh, and on the other hand, um, it is, you know, an important ecological process out in uh, our wildland ecosystems. Uh, of course, there are, um, there's a point to where fire can be problematic in those ecosystems as well. Um, and that's, that's a big ongoing uh, part of scientific research and debate. So I'm going to leave it there so that we can have questions. Sorry if I went over too long, but um, yeah, that's all I've got. Super. Well, thank you so much, Brian. You didn't go over it. It's all good. Thank you. Um, and thank you to everyone. I want to open it up to any questions that our audience might have. You can place them in the chat. Um, and in the meantime, I can start things off. I think that um, much of the data that we have, for example, biophysical exposure to wildfires or census data, it doesn't really capture those populations who are 
already excluded from this data, right? Let alone from disaster mitigation and recovery efforts. So um, what might a more holistic assessment in terms of vulnerability look like that can really help get to some of these invisibilities that you describe in your work, especially you, Mike and Katie, and how might we better include populations such as undocumented migrants, for example, who we know are not captured in these larger data sets, right, that we often use to measure things like exposure and risk, what would a process that's more inclusive of these populations look like in terms of things like wildfire preparedness pre and post disaster? And I think for this, I'm looking more at a policy level. So what changes can be made in the short term and long term? I'm hoping that some of this can maybe inform the work that Josh Friday is involved with. I, I can um, talk about that briefly. I, I think looking at more holistic uh, planning is ensuring that our, our, uh, our disaster planning is in, in inclusive and that we legitimize multiple forms of knowledge, you know, from um, migrant indigenous Mexicans to, of course, California Native Americans uh, about their practices around fire, uh, their lived experience um, in dealing with fire. Um, their fire suppression practices. Uh, also, uh, inclusive disaster planning would embrace multiple communities and disaster planning. Oftentimes, it's very top down. Um, it's not very inclusive and integrated of uh, uh, building relationships before disaster happens with uh, trusted community-based organizations, particularly those working with vulnerable but stigmatized populations that are often at the margin and afraid to uh, deal with government um, institutions for fear of deportation. Uh, you know, some of these shelters are uh, have, have histories having the National Guard or police and sheriff there, so that can create an unsafe uh, uh, environment. And then also we need to bolster um, some of these community-based organizations, providing them with funding and reimbursing them. Um, then oftentimes we see these organizations as stopgap measures, you know, when there's no official government response, these community groups that are already struggling with small budgets themselves, uh, less resources, um, have to dig in their own budgets to pay for some of uh, these disaster preparedness equipment, such as N95 masks, goggles, glasses, a disaster, a private disaster relief fund, because, uh, the federal government does not allow uh, undocumented immigrants to access FEMA disaster relief fund. And, you know, depending on the disaster, you know, there's been studies that could be $30,000 to $40,000 per household. And so a lot of these families are not um, being able to do that. And then quickly is, is the diversity of our disaster leadership in our, itself. You know, and, and this one oversight hearing that Congress had in uh, 2020, you know, a, uh, a disaster manager from uh, Virginia really stated that disaster management is overwhelmingly white and male. And, you know, from the higher level to even middle, middle management. So uh, these disasters are primarily occurring in low income and communities of color that are first and hardest hit. But our, our disaster management field from the federal government to state and local government are not representative of uh, the diversity of our community, let alone the individuals that are being most impacted. So I'll leave it there, but I have some specific, more prescriptive uh, recommendations from the research that I can talk about, those were more broad ones. Thank you. And Katie? 
Yeah, I would add a few things. Um, I think Dr. Mendez has worked does a great job of explaining sort of social or contextual vulnerabilities of certain populations um, because of the society in which they live. And I think that's one core area to start thinking about wildfire mitigation. But a second compounding area would also be to consider the built environment in addition, that these are two ways in which people and, and communities of people end up getting exposed, not only through the broader social structures they operate within, the languages they speak, the government programs they can or cannot access, but also whether they're in a single family home or a mobile home, and um, that those two ways of thinking about vulnerability are, are really important. Um, second, in terms of policy prescriptions, I think I understand why there's so much emphasis placed on asking what individual residents can do themselves, but I do sometimes worry that we're putting too much of a burden or too many expectations on communities to do response and recovery work that really government also needs to be stepping up and doing either in response or, or in preemptive prevention of, of disasters. Um, and I think this actually stems from some of the quantitative findings I've been doing that a number of, of variables that I've analyzed that predict likelihood of structure destruction are actually not individual building level. They're at a much broader, they're at the neighborhood scale, they're at the community scale. So these are influences on, on fire damage that you can't as an individual resident totally address. So that means we have to be thinking about these planning strategies at community or, or regional scales as well. And that, that will be really critical. Yeah, excellent point, Katie. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, agreed. I, I don't think that we can turn to community-based organizations to do the work that should be in the hands of government. Um, okay, so I do have a question for from the audience for Dr. Mendez. Um, does climate justice start with justice for migrant workers or is it the other way around? Um, first off, I'd like to thank um, Katie for her, her great comment. And this idea of disaster fatigue is real for a lot of these communities, particularly in places like Sonoma County that has experienced uh, multiple years of extreme wildfire events starting from 2015 to the uptake to um, 2020. And this idea um, of uh, mental health uh, and trauma is, is quite significant. And I saw that difference when I, in my first initial project working in Ventura, Santa Barbara, um, that has a couple of fires, but not to the extent that Sonoma and other places have had them year after year. And that idea of trauma and mental health stress and people just wanting to totally disengage from the, the uh, disaster planning process or are constantly uh, on edge uh, in this almost uh, year round nine month or 10 month fire season. Um, uh, so I just wanted to add that and thank you, Katie, for bringing that up. And in terms of uh, climate justice, um, like for me, I, 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 I rarely use the word uh, climate justice. I use environmental justice because I think climate justice is a component of environmental justice and really centering you know, uh, uh, environmental racism or intersectional uh, environmental inequalities and understanding that some people because of the positions in which they live are gonna be harmed more. So yes, definitely if we tackle some of these environmental justice issues from wildfire to other extreme weather events or if you want climate induced disasters, um, you, you will be able to use those as guiding principles to tackle and uh, target your resources to the most vulnerable um, and marginalized communities. 
Great, thank you. And this is a question also from the audience, I think for all of you, um, in addition to the uh, California Volunteers Program that I assume you're referring to the program that Josh Friday described, are there any other organizations our students can get involved with to help address these issues? Well, I, I would say there are, um, <laughs> there are many fire safe councils across the state uh, there's a state fire safe council, and then, and then usually each county has at least one fire safe council, but there's often more than one. Um, they are in desperate need of uh, different voices. They are uh, overwhelmingly um, made up, they're, they're comprised mostly of people that are in fire management, which is often very focused on a certain aspect of, of wildfire mitigation. Uh, and again, it goes back to um, being really, really hyper-focused on vegetation um, out on the landscape. So I, I, I think that those fire safe councils could certainly use more input from uh, different, different parts of uh, the communities that they serve. Um, that would be my, my recommendation. Uh, just know that um, change often is slow in, in, in uh, the fire management communities, um, I would say, so. Thank you, Brian. Um, I have a couple of questions here for um, Josh Friday. Knowing that much of California is subject to different natural disasters, why is it so hard to push more climate and disaster funding to the small communities affected more thoroughly? Um, so I think it's an important point to, to point that, that uh, California is diverse and there's uh, big issues facing that are different in parts of the community, parts of the state. Um, so what works in one community doesn't work uh, in another community, isn't a priority in another community. And so um, uh, that, that I think makes it difficult to when we talk about climate broadly and environmental justice broadly in California is we really are talking about uh, a, a state that's the fifth biggest economy in the world. and and uh, and and bigger than you know many many other states in the in the uh, in the union. So uh, so that definitely poses a challenge. But I think that there's been a lot of efforts uh, over the last couple of years by um, the governor and and his leadership team uh, to ensure uh, that that resources are getting into uh, smaller communities. I think one of the first things we saw him do uh, when he was first elected was to take. Um, the entire cabinet uh, to a community in the Central Valley that didn't have uh, uh, access to clean running water um, to highlight uh, the importance of, of those communities and what they're facing. We, I, I talked to quickly about the Listos program, which is a program specifically launched uh, to provide resources uh, for, um, for underserved communities uh, to be able to prepare and respond to disasters. Uh, so I think we're, you know, I think we're starting to see some real attempts uh, to provide resources to those communities. Um, and then I also see, I, I think I see a question about, which is really interesting about um, how do you talk to people uh, who don't believe in climate change? Because this is something, and I get asked this because we did, we did create a climate action court. Uh, so obviously focused on climate, um, but we were able to, one of the, one of the, um, which I think is really interesting. Uh, one of the first places that we piloted the program was in Fresno, California hardly a liberal bastion uh, of the state. Uh, and the mayor, who is a Republican and, and former law enforcement officer, uh, embraced the program wholeheartedly. For them in Fresno, the work to plant trees and the work to uh, provide tree canopy in low-income areas, uh, for him, was about beautification. It was about pride in the community. 
Uh, and, and that was okay in my mind. That's good for him. That's what the priority was. Uh, we were able to accomplish the same work and we were able to do the same climate work, I think, and, and, and get resources uh, into that community. Uh, and we were able to do it in a way, in a place um, that, and uh, in, in with language that made sense for them. So I, I think, you know, we hear the cliche a lot, meet people where they are. Uh, so, and I think that's, you know, it's true. Uh, and, and we have to be, uh, you know, I think we can't always be as pure as we want to be about this uh, because at the end of the day, we like, we just got to get the work done. Um, and so we should find out what's important to people. Every single person, I don't care what political party you are. I don't care how conservative or liberal or moderate you are. You want clean running water. I don't care where you come from. You want to breathe clean air and you deserve the right to bring breathe clean air. Uh, and these are common values uh, that we can that we can I think appeal to everybody on, uh, and we should be. Great, thank you, thank you so much, everyone. I do want to put out here a question that we didn't get to that I think is really important as well. Oftentimes, the needs of disabled people are not adequately taken into account in a lot of these disaster planning um, responses efforts, and um, I, I just wanted to make sure that even if we're not able to answer Christine's question, that we recognize it's important. So thank you, everyone, so much for being here. It was a great conversation. It was amazing to hear all of your great research. Thank you. We're grateful. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all the questions and meeting you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Thank you for listening to our panel on wildfires as we attempted to take a closer and more careful look at the impact of wildfires on California communities and ecosystems. CCEP would like to once again thank California Humanities for their generous support of this podcast. A special thanks to our panelists and the work that they do to bring to light the many climate injustices we face, as well as to our audience members. And thanks to you for listening.